want to uh, start this morning by asking you all a question. We uh, believe in the omnipotence of God. Uh, God is all-powerful. In simple terms, that there is nothing God cannot do. Well, oops, uh-oh. <laughs> Bad pedagogy here to kick the uh, ornaments over. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. It's been one of those days. Now, what was I talking about? Oh, I had a question for you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, 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 my question. If God, if there's nothing God can't do, how do you respond to the question, can God make a rock so heavy he cannot pick it up? Huh? I mean, if you say no, well, then there's something God can't do. He can't make that rock. If you say yes, well, then he's got this rock so heavy he can't pick it up. So there's still something God can't do. So doesn't this disprove our our original postulate that there's nothing God can't do? You're trapped, aren't you? Well, before uh, I give the answer to this uh, silly and uh, apparent conundrum, let me point out that this is exactly the kind of question that uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders were looking for to try to trip Jesus up, to try to, to trap him. They were looking for a question that would either make Jesus look foolish in front of people and so he would lose the respect of, of the people, or a question that would uh, trap him in some legal snare so they could uh, report him, get him arrested and out of the way. See, that's what they were trying to do. They, their heart was to trap Jesus and take away his followers. They were not honest seekers of truth, even though they were trying to present themselves that way. Their heart was to, to destroy our Lord. Now, last week we talked about the fact that this kind of thing still happens all the time. Those who refuse to submit to Jesus are committed in one way or another to justifying that. Uh, Sometimes even it seems at the cost of even the very concept of truth, destroying the concept of truth. But fortunately, the wisdom of man is mere foolishness to God and in fact stupidity. Let's look at uh, Luke 20. See how Jesus handled this kind of attack. We're going to pick up about verse 20. While you're turning there, let me uh, respond to that question about God making a rock so big he cannot pick it up. See, this kind of question is merely a a, a logical, kind of a a, a rhetorical absurdity. It's a word game. It, It creates... A contradiction in definitions, not in reality. It's a problem of language, not of uh, power. It's not a problem of power at all. You see, by, by creating a contradiction in definitions, one isn't creating a, a change in reality or a problem in reality. And, and that's all that, was going, that, that goes on with this question. You see, there is not, there never can be a rock so heavy God couldn't pick it up. 
So it's, it's a logical absurdity. It's like saying, can God do something that can't be done? Well, no, because if He can do it, it can be done. It's, it, it, it's meaningless. Can God make a dog that isn't a dog? No, because as soon as it's not a dog, <laughs> it's not a dog. As soon as it's not a dog, it no longer carries that definition in language. Again, creating that contradiction in definitions really does not create a problem in reality or in fact. It's just word games. I've heard it asked similarly, you know, if God is love, then can God do something unloving? No. Well, then there's something God can't do. Again, you're playing games with definitions. If God is love, then by very definition, what God does is loving. Fact is, we have no other reliable way to define love. So, again, the problem is a problem of semantics, of language, not a problem of fact. This kind of question is designed by silly men who are only trying to avoid dealing with the true God, the Creator, the one who has absolute right and claim to our love and our lives. And this is an important point as we look at how Jesus handles these things, what Jesus does in our passage. In our passage, Jesus will respond to two kind of trap questions, two trick questions. And he will give remarkable Answers. He really meets these guys on their own turf and really takes them on head on. But I want you to watch what he does at the end of each of the questions. Jesus moves the issue to where it belongs, to an issue of their personal response to God. Now watch for that. Let's take a look at the first incident, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they're referring to the Sanhedrin who was keeping a watch on him, the leaders of, of Israel. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they may, might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Well, Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Okay, since the Sanhedrin was unable to trap Jesus by coming straight at him, they decide to plant some young men among Jesus' followers to act like they are followers, but who are kind of there to, to, to uh, trip him up kind of moles that are waiting for an opportunity to, to, to sneak in and, and to ask a question just at the right time to embarrass Jesus, to make him look, look foolish. Now, they don't seem to be particularly bothered by the dishonesty of this. Uh, for them, the ends justify the means. And they knew from experience how violently, ruthlessly Rome dealt with any kind of... of uh, 
revolt or insurrection, any kind of sedition at all. So they thought maybe if we can get Jesus to trip up on this question, then we can get Rome to do our dirty work for us. We'll come out looking innocent. Rome will be the bad guys. We would just happen to be there. But still, they'd get what they wanted, what their hearts were really after. They're still just playing games. They're still being dishonest. It is incredible how scheming we can become when we set out to justify our sinful choices. Well, these people pretend to be sincere followers of Jesus, but that's not where their hearts are. And sadly, Scripture tells us that this kind of person, these kind of people will always be with us. We will always have among us those who pretend to be sincere followers of Jesus, but that's not where their heart is. Like these pretenders who come to Jesus, they may say all the right things. They may talk uh, about how much they believe Jesus, how they believe what Jesus says is true, like these guys said. They'll talk about how much they love Him, how much they talk to Him. But their heart isn't to submit to Him. Their heart isn't to respond to Him and obey Him. Their heart is to find a way around the things that Jesus says. Jude warns us in his little book that certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and refuse the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. They see God isn't fooled. God is aware of this. He's always known. And his heart aches to, to free these people from their, their inner deception. And Jesus' heart was, was to lead these young men away from, from the games they were playing so that they, too, could be saved. About 25 years before um, this incident, uh, Rome had taken Archelaus, uh, deposed him as the king of the area, and put their own procurator in his place. And at that time, they imposed their first poll tax. What what that was was a tax, one denarius, for every man, woman, and child over the age of 12. Well, when they did this, this is the first time Rome had taxed, um, directly taxed the people of Israel. The people resented it and they rebelled. Eventually that rebellion became organized by a man by the name of Judas the Galilean. Well, the response of the Romans to that revolt was fast and brutal. They sent in troops and they wiped out the revolt. They wiped out whole cities. They executed everyone involved with the revolt. From that point on, the people of Israel, especially those up in Galilee, where this uh, revolt centered, uh, and realized Galilee is the place where most of Jesus' disciples come from, where most of his followers were. This revolt, uh, or this this, uh, suppression, created a, a, a constant undercurrent of resistance. They hated this tax. The tax was symbolic of Roman uh, oppression. And it was a matter of patriotism for them to resist Rome and to resist this tax. It has always been an accepted maxim. The power to tax is the power to control. And they 
hated Roman control. You see, these young men who had been kind of insinuated into Jesus' disciples, they knew this. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were presenting it as a sincere question, and it could have been. I mean, it's legitimate to ask Jesus, should we pay taxes? But their heart wasn't sincere. This was a setup. See, if Jesus said no, I mean, Rome is not the legitimate government. God is the king of Israel. Rome is are pagan. They're, they're, they're irresponsible. Don't give them your money. Well, then the leaders could just kind of go up to the governor and say, Hey, you hear what this Jesus is saying? And the Romans would execute Jesus. Incidentally, it's worth noting that when uh, Jesus was actually arrested later on, the leader still said the same thing, even knowing that it was false. But again, the end justifies the means. But if Jesus, on the other hand, responded to their question by saying, Yes, pay taxes. Well, then the people would turn on him, especially the Galileans who most of his followers were from, the zealots, the the different groups from from Galilee. They would be uh, disillusioned with Jesus. They would turn away from him. It would be politically incorrect. And if they turned away from him, then Jesus, uh, or then the leaders could arrest Jesus without any fear of the people. But Jesus handles this, this question masterfully. He asked to see a denarius. So somebody... Fishes in their pocket, pulls one out. And he says, now, whose image do you see on there? And they say Caesar's. See, in those days, uh, the uh, minting of a coin that was used in a country was the sign of sovereignty. When that coin was used within that country, you were accepted as the rightful government, the rightful king. When, when, whenever there was a revolt or a revolution, the first thing a new government would do would be to mint coins. If people started using those coins, that meant that they were accepting the sovereignty of the new government. That's what uh, uh, Judas the Galilean minted his own coins. The Maccabees minted their own coins. The Jewish historian Maimonides is quoted as saying, Wherever the coinage of a king is current, there the inhabitants acknowledge that king as their ruler. You see, these coins that uh, these guys had had Tiberius, Caesar's, picture on it, had his face on that coin. And Jesus is just pointing out that since they are using those coins, Caesar is the de facto ruler of Israel. See, whether they like Caesar, whether they like Rome or not, they are using those coins. And in that, by doing that, they are showing that they accept Caesar's sovereignty and therefore should submit to him as their ruler. Now this was probably a way of explaining it that, that these people had never thought of before. It probably made sense to them in a way they had never thought of before. So they're thinking about it. But realize Jesus goes beyond their question. Their question was, Is it permitted in in the law of Moses, in God's law, for us to pay taxes to an irresponsible pagan government? Well, Jesus' response is that it's not just permitted. It is required. It is a moral and spiritual duty. See, Jesus taught that we are to uh, respect and submit 
to the government and the land we find ourselves in. This is regardless of the form of government and regardless of who the specific leaders are. This is true for the Christian in China. This is true for the Christian in Iraq. This is true for the Christian in the United States. We dishonor our Lord when we act rebelliously, speak disrespectfully of the leaders that he has given us. Our leaders are ordained by God. Now, they may or may not be wise or righteous or godly, but they are our leaders. And part of our submission to them is paying taxes. We must willingly and honestly pay our taxes. Now, as Americans, we have the freedom to vote for people who will lower our taxes if we want to. We have the freedom to argue for certain fiscal or monetary or government policies. But that must never degenerate into disrespectful attitudes and rebellious attitudes and speaking in a harsh and disrespectful way of those leaders God has given us. This is one of the commands of our Lord that we as Christians so often ignore, especially around election time. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So this is an important teaching of our Lord. But there's something even more important going on here. When Jesus asked them whose portrait is on that coin, the word he uses there is the Greek word icon, the word we get icon from. It means image. The very same word used in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 1.26, talking about the creation of humans. We're told there that we were created with God's image stamped on us. See, the real issue is not do we owe our taxes to the government. The real issue is that we owe God everything, our very lives. And that's, that's what Jesus wanted these young men who were kind of sent to spy him out. That's what he wanted them to face. That's what we need to face as well. You see, these, uh, these men were trying to use their questions to avoid this issue of their relationship with God. But Jesus' point is that we were created in the image of God. God created us that way because he wanted to have a unique relationship with us. That's 
your purpose in life. That's why you were created. Now, we want to uh, talk about doctrine, theology. These are good things. But if you notice, Jesus will only talk about these things, about theory, for so long. And then he wants to talk about relationship, relationship with God. It's important that we talk about truth, that we recognize there is truth, that we come to understand it because we want to do what is right. But all the truth in the world isn't going to get us anywhere if we cut it off and separate it from that relationship with God. We want to you know, quibble about this truth or that truth. And honest debate and exploration is valuable. But unless it gets back to the issue of relationship with God, it misses its whole point. The issue is what is God's do? We are stamped with His image. We owe Him everything. All that we are and have. And these religious leaders, these young men, were using their religious pretense to avoid that one thing. Too often we use our religious pretense to avoid that one thing. That we are created in God's image. We are rightfully His possession. We have the freedom and privilege of giving Him His due. Giving Him our lives, all that we are, and all that we have. See, and this really puts it all in perspective. We don't submit to our government because they deserve it. We submit our entire selves, all we have, all we are, to God. And He tells us to respect those who govern us. He tells us to pay taxes. And say, out of our submission to Him, we do these things. And He deserves it. It also helps us uh, address and, and remove any conflict we may encounter in that process. If it really does come down to a question, who do we obey, God or Caesar? There is no question. We are God's possession. We are stamped with His image. But it does come back to, to the question. You're willing to give yourself entirely to Him. That's who you are. That's how you were created. Give Him your entire life. Now let's take a look at, at the next question that was brought to Jesus. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. In the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God, or but, but the one of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more 
questions. Okay, group of Sadducees come to Jesus. Now, Sadducees are the equivalent of our modern theological liberals. They basically didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in angels or demons or any of that stuff. And they didn't believe that the Bible really was the Word of God. They didn't accept the Bible as the Word of God, other than the first five books, the books of Moses. And even those, they didn't take all that seriously. What mattered to them was political power. This was the Sadducees were the ruling class. And their, their focus was on, on manipulating political influence and control. Now, the reason they bring this particular question to Jesus is because this question had worked so well for them in the past with the Pharisees. Pharisees were kind of the, the uh, um, theological fundamentalists of the day. And when they brought this question to the Pharisees, it stumped them. And so they looked at Jesus, the Sadducees looked at Jesus as a, a, a theological conservative, so they thought they could stump him with this question as well. And if they could stump Jesus, that would diminish Jesus in the eyes of the people that would show the people that the Sadducees were superior to Jesus and they would accomplish what they were trying to do in tricking him. So they asked Jesus about the resurrection, which they were absolutely convinced was nowhere to be found in the uh, writings of Moses. Nothing about the resurrection there. The question they asked had to do with what is known as the laws of Leverite marriage. Now, the, the term lever is Latin for brother-in-law. In Deuteronomy 5, God instructs that when a, when a man uh, would die without an heir, without a, a son to inherit, his brother should marry his wife and have children for him. Uh, I see a lot of people squirming, thinking about their brother-in-law. And, and, oh, all right, I understand. Things were different back then. It's no longer the law. No longer with God's design. You see, back then, a woman could not inherit. Only sons could inherit. A woman couldn't even inherit her husband's estate. And so this was a, a provision, first of all, for the brother to take care of the widow, the childless widow. And second of all, to have the children who could inherit and then take care of their mother. And, the, and all of the inheritance, all of the property would stay within the family. This was, was the provision. This was the law of Moses. But these guys come up with this, uh, you know, hypothetical situation where you got seven brothers. They each marry this woman. They all die. None of them have kids. One at a time they're married to her. When they go to heaven, whose wife will she be? You know, for them, this just showed the absurdity of believing in a resurrection. I mean, if you take it out to its logical extreme, look at the, the, the silliness it, it traps you in. But Jesus wasn't stumped, <clears throat> not even for, for a moment. In Mark's account of this very same discussion, Mark gives us Jesus' opening line. And, uh, that For some reason, Luke doesn't record for us, but it's a good line, so I want to give it to you. Jesus starts by saying, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. He says, basically, you're clueless because you don't know the Bible and you don't know God. And that's your real problem here, people. And Jesus goes on to, uh, to, to say, basically, in heaven, 
things won't be like they are on earth. It will be different. For one, nobody will be married. Now, in spite of what our LDS friends may believe, there are no marriages for eternity, no matter where the wedding takes place. Jesus says, we will be like the angels. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have little wings attached to our shoulder blades and kind of flit around from cloud to cloud playing harps. It doesn't mean we become angels after we die. Those are just kind of popular culture misconceptions. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus says we will be like the angels in that we will have spiritual bodies and that we will be immortal. We will never die. See, the fact is we will be superior to the angels. Right now in our fallen state, we are inferior But we will be superior because, in fact, we are children of God. We are in Christ, and Christ is the Son of God. Therefore, we are children of God. Uh, John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. See, we are children of God. But what that's going to be like, we really don't know. God doesn't give us a lot of information about what heaven will be like. We know that uh, there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. All the bummers will be gone. We know that because Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We know that we will be in God's immediate presence. And that will be wonderful. That will be exciting. We know, like John said, that we will be like Jesus. Our, char- our characters will be completely conformed to His image. All the sin and the garbage will be gone. We can love each other the, the, the way that He loves us. And we'll have glorified bodies like He did after His resurrection. You know, when Jesus showed up to His disciples after the resurrection, they were able to recognize Him. So I assume we will recognize each other, even though in Revelation 1, when Jesus showed up to John on the island of Patmos, John didn't origin, or, or initially recognize him because Jesus had changed. It scared the bejeebers out of John because he was Jesus in, in his glory. Until John realized who it was, and, and then he was very comfortable. So, again, I, I don't know. We, we don't really know much about what heaven is going to be like. It's fun to speculate. Somebody came up after the first service and said her daughter was speculating. He said, uh, in heaven, everybody will have a swing set. So, (laughs) I think she's probably right. I mean, we can speculate. Uh, I I have my own pet theories about what heaven's going to be like, and sometimes at weak moments I share it with interns in study center classes. But I would not waste your time this morning with my speculations. We can waste so much time and energy speculating about all kinds of things, about exactly what heaven's like or exactly what hell is like or angels and demons and how they're organized and and what their specific powers or limitations are. If we take our speculations too seriously, get too attached to our little pet theories, we can become so silly, so foolish, get so far afield from what's important, so far off on tangents. 
You see, Jesus' point that he's making here is that the, the heaven is going to be different. And the fact that these Sadducees cannot figure out how it's going to work doesn't detract at all from the reality of heaven. doesn't change the facts at all. It just shows their limitations, that they just are ignorant. The fact that they can't work out how everything's going to work out in their own head doesn't matter, doesn't change anything. And again, Jesus meets them on their own turf, and He shows them that even in the writings of Moses, there were clues given to the resurrection. Jesus says that, you know, in the incident about the bush, when, when Moses comes to the burning bush, when God identifies Himself, God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and of Jacob. God used the present tense, not the past tense. God didn't say, well, I was the God of Abraham, but he's dead now, so I'm not anymore. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, implying that Abraham is still alive. When the uh, teachers of the law heard this, they went, whoa, what a great argument. We never thought of that one. And so they said, you know, well said, teacher. He put those Sadducees right in their place. But then they backed off immediately because they saw at once that they were outgunned in trying to, to take Jesus on with these trick questions. Now, was Jesus just putting these Sadducees in their place? I don't think so. I think, again, there's more going on. That Jesus was, again, moving the issue where it, where it should be, to the essential thing. He says, God is the God of the living. And implicit in that is that He is to be their God as well. You see, the reality is that we were created in the image of God. He has absolute rightful claim to our lives. And He is the God of the living. He is to be our God as well. Now, the issue for each of us is not whether we can find some question to hang up on and to keep God at arm's length. That just shows a heart of rebellion and resistance to a God who loves us. The real issue for each one of us is that you were made to know God. And He is alive and available to you right now. Man, the rest is just smoke. Let me just end by reading a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 145, 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him, in truth, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, 
Jesus gives remarkable answers to these trap questions, but his goal was not just to impress, to win. His desire for them, his desire for us, is that we come to what's important, our relationship with the God who loves us. Seek him while he can be found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are impressed with you, with your wisdom, with your skill, with uh, your insight. But Lord, we don't want to just end there. We don't want to be like the Sadducees. We don't want to be like the spies of the Sanhedrin who just back off impressed. We want to be those who come forward seeing your love, seeing the message that you had, that we are made in your Father's image, made to know him, that you are recreating us into your image, that we belong to you, and we have the privilege, opportunity to give ourselves all that we are, all that we have to you, and that you are the God of the living, and we want you to be our God as well. Lord, open our hearts, expose those questions that we're using to keep you at arm's length. Draw us to yourself, we pray. Amen.